Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Investing in Growth, Exploring KKR's Attraction to $25 billion plus RIA Beacon Point. It's a conversation with Matt Cooper, President of Beacon Point, and Sasank Chari, Managing Director of KKR. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. Some of the most successful independent firms are created from a collective vision derived from individual experiences and a desire to achieve something bigger and better than themselves. Beacon Point Advisors, for example, turned that formula into the nation's largest female-led RIA with over $25 billion in assets under management and advisement. In fact, over two decades, Beacon Point has grown their presence from coast to coast based on making the most of one key factor, opportunity. It all started when the founding partners, Matt Cooper, a guest on this episode, met Shannon Yusey, Beacon Point's CEO, and Garth Flint, all of whom joined forces based on each of their visions for what an RIA should be. And you might say that worked out quite well, making it attractive to one of the leading private equity firms in the world, KKR, who announced their investment in Beacon Point at the end of 2021. KKR's investment in Beacon Point certainly speaks to how hot Beacon Point is as a firm, but it also speaks volumes about how hot and frothy M&A is in the RIA space in general. So in this episode, we look at what drives investments like this with perspectives from both sides of the table. Lewis Diamond, my partner, talks with Beacon Point president and founding partner Matt Cooper, along with Sasank Chari, managing director of KKR. To learn more about the complementary value that both firms derive from a deal like this, plus to learn more about Beacon Point's growth, what their thoughts are on M&A going forward, what makes an RIA attractive to an investor, and much, much more. It's an information-packed episode, so let's get to it. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Lewis. It's great to be here. Perfect. And Sasank, we got a two-for-one special today. Thank you very much for accompanying Matt as well. Thank you, Lewis. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So let's get started. Um, Matt, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background before starting Beacon Point in 2003? Sure. My background, I've only had two jobs, Beacon Point being one. And the one prior to that was when I first got out of college, I started in the life insurance business. And my days were effectively making cold calls to small privately held businesses to, uh, insure the owners. And then somewhere along that continuum between 1989 and 2001, the firm that I was with developed or put in place an RIA. 
which was not spectacular, but it gave me the basic understanding of asset allocation and, and what we're ultimately going to do with Beacon Point. Excellent. And how did this shape your vision for founding Beacon Point? You mentioned it briefly, but how did your time either growing up, going through college or in this first career, how did it impact what Beacon Point came to be? Well, it's interesting because I met my partners, uh, Shannon UC and Garth Flint in 2001. And it was when I was exploring leaving the firm that I was with to set up my own firm, which would have been an RIA doing asset allocation, investment management, financial planning. And I had the opportunity to join forces with Garth and Shannon. And Shannon happened to be writing the business plan for Beacon Point when she was in grad school. And so what you see in terms of Beacon Point today is not exactly what the business plan said back in the day, but she had the original vision. It just so happened that it co it just lined up with my vision and what I wanted to do in my career. So it was kind of fortuitous dumb luck for me. If you look back at that business plan today, just out of sheer curiosity, what percent of that vision do you think was put into reality? I think at the start, nearly all of it. So the premise was people want to have objective advice that's unbiased, unconflicted, and we could allocate to the very best managers, investment managers in each asset class. That was 2002. By the time we got to 2008, we'd become a planning first, full spectrum wealth management firm. So investments are still a very important part of what we do, but we lead with planning now. Great. Thanks for sharing. So Sasank, let's, um, let's hand the mic to you. Can you tell us about your background and journey leading to joining KKR as a managing director? Sure. So I got into the financial services business coming out of school 20 years ago, initially in the investment banking business, and then moving over to private equity after a couple of years. And didn't initially start in financial services as an industry focus. Actually started advising industrial businesses for a few years and then investing in consumer and retail businesses. So got a pretty broad perspective on different business models from highly cyclical to highly capital intensive businesses and a broad range of different business models, as I said. And then during the financial crisis is where I cut my teeth in the financial services industry, investing in failed and distressed banks across the country. As you know, that was the center of, of where the crisis hit in the US. and. What was interesting that came out of that was while community banks, their main business was taking deposits and making loans, they were in the middle of a lot of other financial services, wealth management being one of them. So that was my first kind of foray investing indirectly at that point in time in the wealth management business, in the RIA business. And since then have been focused on financial services, investing broadly, wealth management being a big part of that. And a year or so ago, I was talking to some people I know at KKR who I'd known over the years. I'd always admired the firm from afar and the stars aligned and there was an opportunity to join our financial services and financial technology team to kind of help lead our efforts here. I like it. And you must have been very busy during that 2008, 2009 time span. It was very busy. It was a great learning experience and I'm glad I went through it. Perfect. And then not that KKR needs an introduction, but can you just briefly describe what KKR does, its overall business model and full scope of operations? Yeah, sure. It's a great question because KKR is obviously known for being a pioneer in the U.S. private equity business, which is the business I sit in today, but it's grown into something much larger than that over time. So 
started 46 years ago in U.S. private equity and then expanded geographically into Europe and then Asia over time. And if you fast forward and look at the business today, we manage close to a half a trillion dollars in assets globally across a variety of strategies spanning from private equity to real assets. So I think real estate and infrastructure and credit across those three broad geographies. And when you look at our investment businesses, we're supported by a suite of capabilities and resources, things such as an operations team, a public affairs team, macro, capital markets, and obviously a pretty broad network uh, spanning the globe. So it's a broad global asset manager and really focused on alternative investments. And I'd say the defining characteristic of our firm in addition to all those capabilities is one of collaboration. We really try to bring the best of our firm to the table and, and help uh, the firms with which we partner. Yeah, it sounds that way. And from reputation alone, of course, it's a very impressive organization. And what I was most excited about to hear from you today, and, and we'll get to in a bit, but just kind of setting the table, is seeing the name like KKR investing in Beacon Point. To me, it was an amazing event for the RIA industry. People many times think of RIAs as just small businesses that aren't as sophisticated as a big bank or a wirehouse, but having the KKR imprimatur, not just on Beacon Point, which is an amazing accomplishment for Matt and Shannon and team, but also for the broader industry. So I think we'll, we'll get to it a little bit later, but stay tuned for hearing more about how KKR thought about the RIA channel and why they wanted to deploy their capital in such a competitive space. So Matt, let's flip back to you and to Beacon Point in particular. Describe Beacon Point today in terms of asset center management, number of employees, and just the overall value proposition. How would you briefly describe what you're doing to advisors and clients alike? Yeah, sure. Beacon Point today is now 25 billion plus in assets under management and advisement. There's about 350 employees in the firm across 37 offices nationwide. You know, what we do for clients hasn't changed, and that's basically working with clients. We do everything client first, team second, owners last. If we keep it in that order, great things happen. So we're focused on the client, delivering the most value we can for the client. That's really about helping them make very complex, emotionally complex decisions, financial decisions with their life, giving them the confidence to make the proper decisions so they have the best outcomes for them and their family long term. Nothing's really changed in the last 10 years. That's always the goal. But I think we're able to deliver even more value now through whether it's estate planning advisory or tax advisory or whatever we may be doing. Matt, can you also just describe the scale of the firm in terms of assets under management? Yeah, today Beacon Point is more than $25 billion in assets under management and advisement, and we're continuing to grow. That's some amazing growth too. And just for perspective, how has the growth been the last few years at various milestones? Well, our growth has been really off the charts the last few years, both inorganically and organically. Between March of 2020 and December 31st of 21, we did 19 M&A transactions. We've also completed three more this year in 2022. So it's been very, very active from an inorganic perspective, but our what we call same store sales or the organic growth rates for each office have also been very impressive over that time period. Yeah, that's some mind-boggling numbers to complete 19 transactions over that time period. And I remember even just a couple of years ago, Beacon Point being two, three, four billion in assets. So it's amazing that 
The firm's grown that much. And like you said, it's not just the inorganic, which is important, but it's also helping the firms that become partners and the advisors that join you grow organically. I think we'll hit on some of that in a little bit. Okay, so let's back up the train real quickly here. So you talked a little bit about how you came to meet your partner, Shannon Yusey, back when Beacon Point was founded in 2002. But when Shannon started the firm in 2002 and you joined, did Beacon Point have any assets? And what were you starting with? And then how did you kind of build it from there? Yeah, so we literally had zero assets. And I joined Shannon in 2001 before we even opened the doors. And the plan was to roll a team out of another firm that was predominantly an institutional consulting firm. And we were able to move about a billion one in client assets from that predecessor firm. And the reason for the move, that team, that prior firm had its own broker dealer. They would pick investment managers that would trade through that broker dealer or direct trades through that broker dealer. So it was what was called a soft dollar shop. And the team didn't want that conflict or even perceived conflict. And so we were able to bring that team to Beacon Point between myself and Shannon. We were able to call together about 60 million in private client assets to get going. So within the first six months, we had about a billion one in institutional consulting assets and about 60 million in private client assets. Yeah, but starting from zero, that's, that's tough. A lot of advisors who listen to this show and certainly ones that we've had, they're at least starting a business with a base of assets. Not that it's, it's, it's hard to start uh, in any segment of the industry, but to start from zero and to build the infrastructure and have the conviction to keep investing your time and capital into a startup. Clearly, it was, it was well worth it, but hard work had to be a big part of the equation. It sure was. So Matt, let's go back to the founding value proposition of Beacon Point. What was the gap in the market that you were looking to fill? Because listening to what you described earlier, conflict-free, picking the best managers, it sounded somewhat similar to what others may say. But we know that any business has to be filling a gap that is not already filled by another business. So what's your take on that line of thinking? Sure. So remember, that's 20 years ago. And the unconflicted RIA story, the fiduciary model, was yet to become the predominant model. It was very wirehouse and independent broker-dealer dominated. In addition to that, there were numerous asset managers that were claiming to be the overall solution to clients' needs with respect to investments, but they may only be a large cap growth shop or a large cap value shop. And so our thought was, can we deliver a fully diversified portfolio of the very best managers in a way that we're only paid by the client And our only incentive is to do what's in the best interest of the client. So that model was not widespread at that point, and it was a fairly new concept. I have to tell you, though, six or seven years later, everybody was saying they were unconflicted, and everybody was talking about being a fiduciary. So that it became commoditized quite quickly, and we were just lucky to get out of the gates and get rolling uh, when we did. Yeah, sounds that way. So at what point did you feel like the business really hit a turning point and things started to take off? The growth was more sustainable. You're probably still working hard, still in startup mentality, where you can kind of take a deep breath and say, okay, I think we're onto something here and this is something that has major value and will continue to grow over time. You know, I don't know if I ever stopped taking a deep breath. I have to tell you, we always did it with a smile on our face, but I mean, we're still working just as hard today as we did 20 years ago, but we're having a great time doing it. I mean, I don't want that to sound cliche or trite or anything like that. It's just, I think it's in our DNA. But the turning point for the business really was in 2010, Shannon was on the TD Ameritrade Institutional Advisor Panel and going off, and I was coming on. 
And so it was the only time with respect to the TD advisor panel where that her and I were in the same room at the same time. And there was a small panel presentation going on. It was Rudy Adolph, who's the CEO of Focus Financial, and Mark Hurley, who most people in the industry know he's, he's uh, one of the early investors in RIAs. And they were essentially talking about the future of the business and the pressures on smaller RIAs because of the demographics of the founders, the demographics of the client base, the competition for talent, the evolution of technology and being able to stay current and relevant with respect to uh, technology. And I you was sitting there, I thought, you know, maybe we can provide a solution to the industry. We've got excess capacity at Beacon Point. We already have an accounting function, an IT function, and a marketing department, and a, a great investment committee, and a planning department. Maybe we can provide all the benefits of scale for smaller firms without those principals having to take the risks themselves. And it just so happened early, first quarter of 2011, so less than six months later, we did our first deal with a small $110 million firm in Scottsdale, Arizona. And that Beacon Point office all in is about $2.5 billion now. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I remember maybe six or seven years ago, Beacon Point was, was always in the conversation as an acquirer in the space. Obviously, a different scale at that time than Focus and Fiduciary Network, which was Mark Hurley. It was even probably pre the deal run that the Mercer and Mariners have had. So you've had your foot in the M&A world for a while, but I believe the acquisition model was a little bit different. I may be wrong, but can you talk about, aside from delivering the scale of Beacon Point, what was the deal structure? How did you structure deals? And during that time period, what sort of success did you have in convincing standalone RIAs to come and partner with your firm? So it's interesting. We did our first eight or nine deals in a different format than we have today. The original format was we set up a separate RIA called Beacon Point Wealth Advisors. To the marketplace, it looked exactly the same. The set of services, everything that we delivered to the client was the same exact thing. We used the same tech stack, the same compliance department, et cetera, but it was a different ownership structure. And the reason for that was, number one, we weren't using any cash in deals. We were doing 100% equity swaps. And number two, our original group of partners at Beacon Point was a little uneasy about diluting for something that they maybe weren't convinced was gonna work, I just kept telling them it was going to work. Thank goodness it worked. So the basic story, Lewis, was we'll own half of this RIA for acquisition. And our partners that merge in will own the other half of the pie. And their equity on that side of the pie will adjust on, based on a three-year weighted average of their net income versus their peers as a part of Beacon Point Wealth Advisors. The idea was, look, this is several years ago, if smaller firms are trading at a multiple of four or five times, and we can scale this entity up to be greater than a billion dollars or more, it would ultimately trade at 10 times plus in terms of a multiple of EBITDA. And so if you believe that story and you came in at four times and you believe the overall would trade at 10, it was instantly accretive to you 25%. So they were getting a, an increase in the value of their equity. They were, they were put in a position where they could grow much faster using the resources of Beacon Point and and the best practices of Beacon Point. And they were able to create a lot more certainty for their clients, their team, and themselves in terms of succession planning down the road. It's hard to believe, and I do remember when uh, you were doing all equity and deals, but you must have met a decent amount of resistance that you're asking 
advisors who own their own business, they're the captains of their own ship to, hey, come take a chance and not just giving up control over some elements, which is tough for many people, but also doing it without taking chips off the table. So was your conversion rate, do you think was less back then than it is now where you can put all cash or have at least a vast amount more in deals versus 100% equity? Well, by the time we did the first private equity trans, uh, transaction in March of 2020, that model was no longer going to be successful in the marketplace because we had so many new entrants that were using you know, large amounts of cash and deals and creating much more creative structures. So it worked really well in the beginning. And it was interesting because we did take the model. I remember Shannon and I up meeting with the top guys at Schwab Institutional. And then I went and met with Mike Durbin when he was running Fidelity's RIA unit as well as the Toms, Tom Bradley, Tom Nally, when they were running TD Institutional, just kind of walking them through the model. I'm not sure anybody was convinced that it would actually work. They also were leaning on the paradigm that this would be a great succession tool for older advisors. A couple of surprises. One, it did work and it worked fabulously. And then number two, the average age of the advisor that was willing to take a leap and merge in and take the Beacon Point Wealth Advisors equity in exchange, the average age was in their mid-40s. And it turned out to be a phenomenal growth model, not a succession model, but a real growth model. It sounds that way. The structure itself kind of self-selects because thinking I would assume is if you're using this as a succession plan and you're looking to retire or phase out, you want to be in, uh, you're trying to find something with more certainty. So likely the focuses of the world probably did better on the succession side. But the good thing is you got younger advisors who were still growth oriented and probably most of which are still part of your firm today. That's true. That's very true. So how about how about today? Today, Beacon Point's one of the top deal makers in the industry consistently, as you mentioned in the beginning, done 19 deals over the last little bit. And you're always top of mind for firms who are interested in a potential sale or merger. So can you explain your current M&A approach and how maybe it's changed or adjusted over the years? Sure. When we realized that we weren't going to be able to continue really being successful by our definition of success with our old model, we we knew that we'd have to bring capital into the firm, and we knew that we needed to merge the two underlying RIAs together into one equity. We needed to have perfect alignment amongst all of the shareholders. And we were really close in the old model, but it, it started to get a little bit out of alignment you know, as, as it got bigger. So we, we also recognized that we had three partners that did want to retire, or they wanted to take all of their equity off the table. They had These were three of the older players. So in the end of 2019, we began a process to determine who our, our capital provider would be. And, and we basically vetted 16 private equity firms down to one. And the one that we chose was Abri Partners. The primary reason for that was they were willing to be a common shareholder with no structure and own dramatically less than half of the, of the business. And so we wanted a minority owner. We wanted to maintain control. And we wanted to have that alignment between all the shareholders. And so we, we chose Avery. Now, the way that we do deals now is more traditional in that it's cash, equity, some earnouts for retention and possibly for growth. So we can be flexible and customize the solution for our potential partners within certain guardrails. But it still sounds like equity is still a major part of the transaction. And why is that? And is it, do you think it's central to your culture and to your overall value proposition? Yeah. So equity is always a part of a transaction, unless it's a, a senior founder and we already have a, we have a G2 that's in place going forward. We'd still want the G2 to take equity, but the founder could retire with 100% cash and, and move on. 
but it's incredibly important for alignment purposes. We pride ourselves on being arguably the most collaborative group. And when I say that, I mean all of the partners around the country who have taken that equity, give us feedback and help us shape and steer the company longer term. And so we need them to be vested in the same outcome that we're vested in. And we need them to be rowing in the same direction that we're rowing in, in the same rhythm. So it's really important that somebody um, is not only willing to take Beacon Point equity, but they understand it and they're excited about it because they understand what it represents. Right. And if you're talking to a RA owner, an independent advisor, or really any future potential partner, what's the reasons you tell them why they should consider merging their equity with Beacon Points? Well, we talked to them about, look, if you can merge into Beacon Point, you're now diversifying your equity holding. You're, you're owning shares in Beacon Point overall. So you're now diversified across 37 offices around the country. So if something happens to you in your office, the rest of your partners around the country are still working hard to drive your enterprise value or your equity value. The risk-adjusted return is much greater. Larger firms will tend to have less volatility in the actual valuation multiples as well, because they represent something that's most likely going to be around in five, 10 years, as opposed to a smaller firm that a lot of things could happen that would affect the long-term outcome for that smaller firm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I like that. The, the risk-adjusted component when you're diversifying your own, your own personal balance sheet. What about those, some of the sacrifices that an advisor or firm owner would make as far as freedom and flexibility when selling? Even the most collaborative firms, um, you're still signing a purchase agreement and there's still some things that you're no longer be able to do or no longer have the complete discretion to handle it like you did before entering into a sale. So what does an advisor give up and what do they retain as far as day-to-day -day autonomy? Yeah, so that's interesting. You're kind of hitting on, there are two big E's when we, when we have these conversations. The first one is economics, that's easy. You know, we can spreadsheet that, we can talk about risk, reward, trade-off, all that kind of thing. But the other E is all around control. And this is where we spend most of our time because Beacon Point is a fully integrated model which means they rebrand a Beacon Point, they come onto our tech stack, they use our investment platform, which is very broad and deep, but it's still a, a change for them. And so the conversations that I have are around control and around understanding that if we're able to give up a little bit of control over things that we think are so important in the short term, we're actually gonna gain a lot more control about our long-term outcomes and what's ultimately going to transpire over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. Because the, the business and the industry is evolving so fast that you want to be in a larger format. Scale is so important. You want to have a lot of other smart people around you and helping come up with the best answers. And that, that's a good point. I mean, Beacon Point, we would tell you we don't have all the answers. I mean, we have 20 years of mistakes that really help inform us. But what we do have are 40 plus really bright partners in the room with us, along with a world-class partner in KKR that's helping us get to the right answer on things. Yeah, I like that. And it's humility to know you don't know everything. And I know from experience that an advisor does have a higher degree of day-to-day -day autonomy on your platform than many of the, the firms you're probably bidding against on deals. So it has to be vetted out, but there's always a happy medium between being in a complete conformance model to just having a loose confederation of affiliated advisors. I really think from personal experience that Beacon Points sits right in the middle for, for what it's worth. Well, thank you. I mean, it is one way of doing things at Beacon Point, but that one way 
has been generated by the collaboration of everybody in the firm, right? So everybody has a voice, everybody's voice is heard. We don't act on every idea, but we do try to find the best ones and, and, and make them work for everybody. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk about the exciting stuff. So you mentioned the initial relationship with Avery Partners, where it was announced in the press in March of 2020 that Beacon Point was opting to sell a minority interest to the firm. So you hit on some of the thinking behind it about wanting to put cash in deal structures, buy out some um, retiring partners. What else though has external capital enabled you to do differently? Because a lot of advisors who are probably listening grapple with keeping control and keeping longer term economics for themselves, but weighing that against the benefits that a sophisticated third party investor or capital partner might bring to the table. So I'm curious, just your thinking at that time, was it just the need for capital to have cash and deals and to buy out partners? Or was there more to the thinking? Uh, there's definitely more to the thinking. I think the, the cash is the obvious one and being able to invest where we need to invest in the business. But almost every firm in our space originated as some form of practice. It's a cottage industry, highly fragmented. We all kind of grew up as advisors first. We weren't people that were former CEOs of large enterprise scaled businesses that are now coming into the RIA space, right? So um, I think a lot of what we, we knew that what got us from where we were to, you know, 9 billion or whatever it was when Avery came in, that kind of thinking, that linear thinking wasn't going to get us from 9 billion to 90 billion. And so we wanted the... Um, additional brains in the room to kind of help us think more at scale. And I have to tell you, Avery was a great partner for the seven quarters that they were our partner. Obviously, the results speak for themselves, and that's why they were able to exit so early. Um, KKR takes that thinking to a whole different level in terms of scaling the business. Right. So great, great segue to the next, the next segment, which is much more focused on um, KKR and the future of Beacon Point. So in November of 2021, um, KKR uh, took out Abri, or Abri as your private equity partner with Beacon Point still owning the majority of the equity. What led you to KKR at that time? So there were a few reasons why we, um, why we chose KKR. And there were 12 private equity firms in that process. Goldman Sachs ran a very orchestrated process. We met with everybody over fireside chats over the summer of last year. We reduced that original number down to six where we received bids, and then we had three finalists in the mix, KKR being the winner. Um, and what drew us to KKR were a few things. Number one, well, the team's great. I mean, it's a great group of people, Sasank being one of them. The willingness of KKR to be a common shareholder. So when you hear about these top ticking multiples in the, in the marketplace, these 20 plus multiples for large platforms, they typically come with some amount of structure, sometimes a lot of structure in terms of preferences for the private equity investor. KKR said, no, we'll be a common, common investor in Beacon Point, just like the rest of the shareholders. So they're in the same economics that we're in. Number two, when we, when we went across the shareholder base and talked to everybody about how much liquidity that they would want as a part of the KKR transaction versus how much equity they wanted to roll forward, virtually to a person with the exception of one person who retired, everybody else sold less than half of their interest. And so that resulted in KKR actually owning a little bit less than half of the business, and they were comfortable with that as well. In fact, they liked the idea that the Beacon Point team and, and everybody across the country was so fired up, frankly, about the future of the business. 
Number three, they've got a, a group called Capstone that we can draw on the resources there in any vertical of business. In particular, digital marketing happens to be a hot one for us right now. And so we're interacting with them and their group of resources there at KKR. And then finally, we had the opportunity to talk to a KKR partner called named uh, Peter Stavros. He was in the Wall Street Journal, I think, like five weeks ago for this particular initiative. And what he had done and KKR had done leading the research on the wealth gap for people who own equity, both in publicly traded companies as well as private companies. And so all the previous research on the wealth gap in, in society has been done on home ownership versus non-home ownership. KKR did the work on equity ownership in companies, both public and private. And what they determined was the wealth gap could be as much as 10 times greater for those who own or don't own equity in a privately held business. So they began to promote broad-based employee ownership across their portfolio companies and take that thinking to the P community at large and really, really push for broader ownership in companies. That was always something that was attractive to Shannon, myself, and all the other partners at Beacon Point. So it were those four things in general that led us to pick KKR. Yeah, it's, it sounds like they kind of hit the nail on the head, too, with keeping alignment with the core part of the value proposition for Beacon Point, which was employee ownership. And also very interesting that you were still able to retain, or you and your advisor partners were still able to retain more of the economics than KKR was. So obviously KKR is the brand in the private equity industry, or at least one of the top two or three that someone might think of. As you've developed the relationship with the team, was there anything that you've been surprised by? Really, no. They're extremely thoughtful. I can tell you, like when we're when we're reviewing a potential M and A transaction, you know, Abri had their typical questions, three or four or five questions, and let's just say KKR may have seven or eight. But they're interesting. They're you know they make me stop and go, wait a minute, I didn't even think of that. I don't know. I'll get the answer. So they're making us better, but in a very soft, positive way. Now it's early. It's very early in the relationship, but I mean we've seen nothing but just great indicators throughout the way. Last question for you before we flip it over to Sasank. What are some things that KKR is helping you achieve that wouldn't have been possible otherwise? Well, I think the KKR's thoughts are around how do we scale this business from a $25 billion business to a $250 billion business? What needs to happen along the way to get there? So they are the same way that we give our clients confidence to make decisions around the business. They give us confidence to make decisions around certain hires that we need to make, investments in technology that we need to make. When you grow a business from zero assets to where we did, and you bootstrap it from 2002 until 2020 in the process by reinvesting your capital back in the business over and over again, you get into a pattern of making decisions that's really cost-focused as opposed to investment-focused. So they're giving us the confidence to really make the investments where we need to make the investments at an even faster pace than we ever have in the past. That's some lofty ambitions you got there, Matt. You better uh, better end this podcast early so you can, you can get back to work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Sasank. Thank you for hanging with us here. So let's turn the line of questioning over to you. We'd love to hear about KKR's thoughts on the RIA space in general. I know a number of years ago, KKR was one of the investors and focus financial partners. So maybe that's part of it, but we'd love to hear just overall broad thinking on the attractiveness or the thesis behind the RIA space. And then we'll turn it to what you saw on Beacon Point in particular. Yeah, sure. So 
as you alluded to, it's a space we've invested in over time, both here in the U.S. and not the RIA space exactly, because the regulatory models are different across the globe. But wealth management in general is something that has been a theme for us globally in Australia and in Europe and, and of course, here in the U.S., And there's a lot of parallels across the globe that drive our interest. The client need is real. The demographic trends are real. And I don't need to rehash it for for this audience. You guys are all quite aware of it. And the market opportunity is just tremendous. So when you think about the value chain of, of asset and wealth management and where the most important work is happening, the most valuable work for the client, it is at that relationship that an advisor has with the client. Maybe leveraging technology, but that relationship the advisor has with the client. And you can find this across a number of channels, but I think it's in its purest form in the RIA channel. And then when you layer on top of that, the fragmentation of the market and the opportunity for smart, value-added consolidation, it's even more attractive. So a combination of tremendous tailwinds plus a consolidation opportunity is what draws us to the space. Uh, and when you think about the, the RIA business and you look at the metrics that all investors look at, it's hard to think of a better business in terms of client retention, net organic growth from existing clients, right? So you have 98 plus percent retention, largely driven because you're solving problems for clients and beyond just investments, but around planning and advice, et cetera and increasing wallet share, growing not only with the market, but beyond that. And that translates into great financial performance as well. Yeah, it's very, very interesting to hear your perspective. But what about risk factors? Anything that steered you away from the RIA space, or you have to have kind of the pros and cons list before you're entering a relatively new market segment for the firm? Yeah, so so not necessarily a new segment for the firm, but there certainly are risk factors in every business. When we think about the RIA industry, the key risk that we do focus on is making sure firms don't get complacent. The RIA space will need to continue to evolve, will need to continue to deliver more and better solutions for their clients, will need to continue to adopt and leverage technology to do that and maintain the privileged position that they have with clients. I mean, there's certainly other risks around the market can go up, it can go down, but we're long-term investors and it's on our mind, but we're much more focused on, uh, you know, continue to deliver a good product and service for the client to maintain that advantage position. Exactly. And you picked your partner in Beacon Point. So can you talk about what your team found attractive about investing in Beacon Point? I'm sure you've looked at hundreds and hundreds of potential platforms to partner with. So obviously it has to be a good match, both on the buy side and the sell side, but given KKR standing in the marketplace, um, Beacon Point couldn't have been the, the first firm that came across your desk. So what was it that led you to jump with both feet in into a partnership with Matt and Shannon and their team at Beacon Point? It's a few factors. I mean, it starts the first time we met Matt and Shannon and team, there was definitely an alignment around, you know, just the way we saw the industry and the growth mindset. You heard Matt talk about the aspirations for the business over time. And we love the industry and we were looking to find a firm to partner with that had a similar vision of what the future could look like. Uh, And we're delighted to have the opportunity to partner with Beacon Point. And then if you kind of get under the hood and look specifically, what are those ingredients that we think make Beacon Point a great firm to partner with that can be one of the winners, one of the real national platforms in the RIA space? 
it's really three pieces. And it really goes back in our mind to some of the history that Matt provided. The firm's been around for 20 years, most of that time without outside capital, which I think created a need for them to really hone in on the culture, hone in on the platform and the technology so they had a real value proposition to offer to advisors. So the first piece is the platform, a centralized approach with the appropriate amount of flexibility around it that, that you were alluding to before, but a centralized approach and operations and, and technology that will help advisors do their job better, grow more quickly. The second piece is the organic growth track record. Beacon Point's grown double digits organically, meaning excluding the benefit of market for a long time across geographies. And that was important to us as well to see it across geographies because you know, you'll often find a firm that's in one market, they've done very well over time, but they haven't gotten to the point where they've replicated across multiple markets in the country. And Beacon Point's certainly done that. And the third piece is M&A. Matt gave you a little bit of the background around the M&A model going back over a decade, but it, there's a real track record of success, uh, a real process around vetting candidates or potential firms to partner with and bringing them in and incorporating them into the Beacon Point model in a really effective way. So that combination of platform, organic growth, M&A growth, and the culture of the organization and the growth mindset of the organization creates, in our mind, a pretty interesting virtuous cycle of success that can get accelerated over the next five to 10 years. Well said. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing. Okay. So to saying, we'd love to get your thoughts on just valuations. Um, right now, as we're recording this episode in the end of this, the second quarter of 2022, valuations for RIAs are certainly high. Market's going through a bit of a rough patch, but we've definitely seen a pretty large uptick in valuations for well-run registered investment advisory firms. So I'm curious, where do we go from here? Any thoughts on this segment being in bubble territory, or do you see valuations still having some room to run? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, first, to address the bubble territory part of the question, a bubble implies something's going to burst, and bubbles, I think, historically are, are created in environments where there's no fundamentals supporting the valuation. So when we look at this space, none of those dynamics exist. The fundamentals are tremendous. There's too few advisors relative to the demand for advice. The business characteristics I alluded to before are, are phenomenal. So we think valuations for the wealth management space will always be at a premium relative to the average business, certainly. Where valuations are going specifically, I'm not sure I know or we know exactly. Certainly, we've been in an environment where valuations for all sectors have been higher than historical averages as a result of perennially low interest rates and, and other factors. And that can certainly ebb and flow. But when you think about the business model itself, like I said, we believe it's one that will always command a premium valuation because of the fundamentals of the business and because of the market opportunity. Yeah, I like that line of thinking. And I think you're right. No one has that crystal ball, but you look at the fundamentals of the industry. And as long as those continue to stay true, um, then that's, that's the answer. Um, so let's talk about some of the, and I have air quotes up, you can't see me, but the perils of private equity in the industry. It's probably a somewhat misunderstood type of investor. And when advisors often hear private equity, they think cost cutting and corporate raiders and more like the Michael Douglas character in, in Wall Street versus less of a partner that Matt described earlier. So what would you tell to an advisor who's considering selling their business? 
to a company like Beacon Point or to another private equity backed firm? How would you either counteract that claim or maybe validate their thinking? Yeah, so I think there is a perception of private equity that exists that, that you alluded to, but the reality is we are in the business of investing in great businesses and trying to find ways to help and make them even greater over the time over time. And that is really driven largely through growth, particularly in a market like wealth management, where there is such a tremendous opportunity. And a company like Beacon Point that's at an inflection point where this is the time to invest in growth, right? So there's very much a growth orientation. You know, the types of things we talk to Matt and Shannon and the team about all relate to, and some of these Matt alluded to, things like how do we build the best data infrastructure possible so we have a real-time pulse on what's going on in the business and make better decisions? How do we invest in digital marketing? How do we invest in certain client segments or in products that, and services that serve certain client segments? And we as a firm will try to leverage learnings that we have across other industries and other portfolio companies that may be relevant. Or if we can't help, we can certainly try to point the team in the right direction or bring some other ex expertise to the table from outside of KKR. That's our mindset. In terms of advice, though, I'd say that an advisor or firm thinking about selling to Beacon Point or another PE-backed firm should do their diligence, right? And really talk to other advisors who are there and understand what the culture is like, what it's like to have PE ownership, and get a real feel for it. And I think if they do that, certainly at Beacon Point, they'd find an organization that is not focused on what the Michael Douglas character would be focused on, but much more focused on building the best national RIA platform that we could possibly be. Yeah, I like that answer. And I agree with you. You have to talk to others that have done it. And it's probably like with anything, you can make broad generalizations about brokers or RIAs. So there's probably is maybe some firms that may be like the Michael Douglas character, but others like KKR, it seems that aren't about controlling the business or extracting cost energies. It's much more about how do we grow this business? And like with anything, advisors have to pick their partners wisely and align with those who think in a similar way and who are trying to get to a similar spot that they are. Matt, let's bring you back into the conversation. Just have two more questions before we wrap today. A ton of firms and even advisors that aren't independent yet, but they're thinking about their business plan of going independent, have the goal of acquiring firms, but very, very few are able to pull it off. For every, probably, this is a guess, three that endeavor to be an acquirer, maybe maybe one um, is able to even pull off one deal. So what would be your advice to advisors or independents who have the goal of acquiring? What's one or two things you'd share with them? Not that you want to create new competitors, but in the spirit of abundance and helping the industry, what would you say to that? I would say that it's not a hobby. It looks good on paper. It makes sense. The economics are accretive. But it's something that, that requires an immense amount of focus, and it requires focus from the senior most people in the firm. An RIA owner likes to be approached by another RIA owner when they start talking about selling their life's work to another firm. So you really have to dedicate the right people, and they have to have a focus on it. Now, that said, it creates a tremendous opportunity cost if you're not successful. Because when you think about the lifetime value of a client, when you bring in a client, they generate revenues, which results in EBITDA as a multiple applied to it. All the time that you're spent out there trying to do M&A, 
If you're not successful, that's time that could have been spent bringing in individual clients because typically the senior principals are the best rainmakers. So I would say if you're going to do it, understand the risk that you're taking and the potential trade-off if you're not successful. But if you're going to do it, focus on it and have the right people focused on it. Yeah. In other words, all in or all out. Yeah. And so Sank, how about you? So advice for a firm looking to be an acquirer, thinking through your playbook for evaluating the next beacon point, what are ways that a firm can set themselves up or kind of go to market that would make them a potential partner of yours in the future? Yeah, it's a great question to piggyback a little bit what Matt said. It's not being a tourist, right? And having a real process and team around it. You know, we invest in really two types of businesses that can be acquisitive. One is a business that occasionally makes an acquisition that's highly strategic every couple of years. And in that case, that's often managed out of a corporate development function who, amongst other things, will focus on M&A. The other one is like Beacon Point, where M&A is part of the business model. And to do that effectively, the company really needs to own it and have a process around it a process around sourcing, a process around vetting, a process around integration, and really treat it as a business line because it is one. So that would be to me and my advice in, in this industry and other similar industries to treat it like anything else, like organic growth requires a certain level of focus and attention. So does M&A. All right. So last line of questioning here. Let's call him Matt for this one. So five years from now, what do you think Beacon Point looks like? You talked about the vision of getting to 250 billion. Is that where you're at in five years? And how does the business changed over that time to um, to where it's going to be in the year uh, 2027 or so? So I use the number 250 billion because that would be 10x where we currently are, and that's the way I like to think about things. I'd be perfectly happy if it was 249 billion. <laughs> So sure you I think it's going to be remarkably larger. We'd, we'd like to be in every primary and secondary market across the country, but we're not going to do that at the expense of the people or the culture. I mean, Beacon Point, you know, our first three screens when we're talking to a potential partner are no jerks allowed, no jerks allowed, no jerks allowed. That applies in everything we do. So to the extent that we can continue to find great people, great partners that are accretive to the firm beyond the economics, we'll keep going. And so far, so good. It's still a big blue ocean. There's a ton of opportunity out there and we're optimistic. And I think we can approach those numbers that I, that I threw out there, the 250 billion, but we have to work hard. We have to be focused and we can't lower our standards. Yeah. And is the eventual goal to have an IPO or in an ideal world, we stay private for the long run? You know, there's a range of outcomes over the next five to seven years. I don't know that IPO is the one that we're focused on. I mean, that's, that's a complete unknown to us. It may be a different sponsor, maybe another sponsor alongside of KKR. KKR could roll us into a, a different, longer dated fund of theirs, or there's a potential IPO. But I don't think we know that until we get there, Lewis. I mean, Sasank might have some thoughts on that as well. Sasank, similar question to you. And, and just to build on it, what would signify a successful investment for KKR other than a really nice financial return? You know, this relates to the question around IPO as well, which is our focus is to help build the best business we can, right? And so in this case, what would signify success, not only a business that's significantly larger, but is doing more and better for its clients. The industry will continue to evolve, as I alluded to before, and I think Beacon Point hopefully will be a, a leader in that. 
in providing additional products and services and capabilities and leveraging technology to do that better. That would define success if, if people think, you know, think about what is a great national RIA, success would be a beacon point is one of the top names that comes to mind. And if we're able to do that, that'll lead to financial success as well. And it will also lead to tremendous optionality on whatever the right liquidity event is. We like to invest in businesses that have a lot of optionality, that have the scale, have the market opportunity, have the continued growth potential at exit, if you will. So the next investor, whether that's another fund of KKRs or, or a new investor or the public markets, sees tremendous opportunity ahead and that'll drive a great financial outcome. Well said. I like it. And that, that's good advice for anyone is preserving optionality is never a bad thing. So I um, wanted to thank you both for being very generous with your time today, sharing your insights and both being patient too. I know I kind of tilted the conversation toward one of you each time, but you're, you're both partners and hopefully it was time well spent for you too. So thank you again. Thank you very much. Thanks, Louis. The definition of success is different for every firm, yet as succinct shared, businesses that have optionality and scale and are focused on driving positive outcomes, not just for the firm itself, but for the clients they serve, are those that are destined to succeed. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578, which is my cell, or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.